Um, um, I don't know. <laughs> My understanding is that he died as a sacrifice for us so that we could all live. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. Primary school, we've been told that yeah. he came down, like he was born to save us from sin and stuff. He has been sacrificed, sacrificed to save the people. If you're not religious, if you're not what, well, if you're not Christian, then uh, you don't necessarily believe that uh, Jesus died and rose from the dead and things like that. Well, I don't know, he might have been persecuted for, for being left-wing or something, but he probably just he just died and just went away like everyone else. He was a troublemaker, wasn't he? Was, yeah, to be honest, he had, he had it coming for him. Why did he die? Just like hundreds of other thousands of Jews died at that time. They were crucified by the Romans. Probably for persecution. Uh, obviously, the guys on the other side of the wall wanted him dead so that they could take over the world. A lot of people thought he was a bit crazy. <laughs> so that's, that's why he died. It made him a criminal for what he was. No one believed him. There you go. People who practice Christianity, especially, it means a lot to them and it is significant to them what Jesus has done. Yeah, it means a lot. Uh, I'm appreciative of it, like, but I couldn't imagine like the pain and stuff that he went through. Why do you think he died? Uh, well, I guess in, in the Bible it says. He died, I don't know actually, I don't know, I actually don't know. <laughs> Good morning. It's great to be here. I guess, uh, well my name's Hannah. I guess my uh, job today is to make sure there's not as much confusion in here as there was on the video that we just watched. Um, today we're going to be looking at that question, why did Jesus die? It might seem strange to some of you that we'd be launching straight into a message about Jesus' death so soon after Christmas, a celebration of his birth. I can understand that. Um, but Jesus' birth was utterly unique, different from anybody who's ever been born. Um, I'm married to James, who's sat over there, just waved. Um, I'm full-time mum to our two kids. And when Ethan was born and then Phoebe was born, they changed our lives forever. Um, it's great. Uh, but completely different now, our life. Um, and to some extent, like our family and friends, their lives have also been affected by that. But that's kind of the extent of it. Um, the whole world doesn't celebrate their birthdays every year. Um, the birth of Jesus, however, has an impact on everybody. Everybody who's ever been born and everybody who's ever yet to be born. Um, it was planned from the beginning of time and its ramifications will continue long into eternity. His life, was remarkable. His, um, his attitude to people and his teachings were full of truth. They were profound. But it was really his death that had um, the impact that changed history. Um, some of you, I'm sure, will have seen a recent campaign from Save the Children. Their slogan is, No Child Born to Die. And I, I agree wholeheartedly with their campaign. I understand what they're trying to say, but there is one exception. Jesus was born to die. It was his purpose. And that makes him utterly unique. Now, he lived, you could argue, he lived his whole life in, in the shadow of the cross. But this, this violent death that some of you, well, most of you probably heard about, this Jesus dying um, violently on the cross, is, isn't, it, it was not a surprise to him. It wasn't something that took him by surprise. He talked about it often. In fact, the gifts given to him in the nativity, the clues are there. Many of you will have heard over Christmas that one of the gifts he was given by the wise men was myrrh. And myrrh is an expensive spice and it was used, amongst other things, but primarily to anoint dead bodies. 
So Jesus lived his life in the shadow of the cross. He was born to die. And the cross, the symbol of Christianity, that brutal form of execution, um, it, it marks Christianity out amongst all other religions and all other philosophies. And I'm going to go into why that is the case. Why, why did Jesus die? Now, I grew up with Christian parents. I grew up in Pakistan. And I grew up being surrounded by Muslims. And my best friends were Muslims. And I had the privilege, I guess, of growing up in a culture where faith was really important. I understood growing up how faith impacted you day by day. Um, but most specifically, it was the example of my parents that, that really made an impact on me. And I remember, it's one of my most vivid childhood memories, being five and talking to my mum about what it meant to be a Christian. And she said that I had done bad things, but God loved me and that he, um, was, he died on the cross to, to forgive me for those things I'd done and that I needed to ask Jesus to live in my life. So I, um, I said, okay, that sounds good to me. Um, I'll, I'm going to go and take a moment. And I decided that I wanted to do that, but by myself. It's quite an independent child, even at five. So I remember running off into my bedroom and classically face pressed against the, the walls of my bedroom, praying, dear God, um, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Please just come and live in my heart. Amen. Um, and obviously as... I grew up, as obviously as time went on, my understanding of what I did deepened, and I had a, a more of an understanding of, of what Jesus' death meant. But if I'm really honest, throughout my teenage years, I was confused about what actually happened on the cross. I, um, yeah, I wasn't completely sure what exactly had happened there that made such a difference to my life. But from a young age, I understood that I did bad things. And we all understand, and we all understand that because we know what guilt feels like. I knew that I needed forgiving, and I knew that God forgave me because he loved me. And my understanding took a traumatic sort of turnaround when I was 18, and I'm going to come back to that a bit later. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So in a nutshell, the answer to why did Jesus die, it's there. Jesus died because God loves us and he loves you. But to understand why dying was actually necessary, we have to arrive at another phrase that's used quite a lot in the New Testament. He died for our sins. Now at this point, people can get quite uncomfortable. Um, I find that, I find it quite easy talking to my friends about God. I quite, you know, we talk about God and God's love. And, and then the moment you kind of get to the bit where you've got to go, oh, you're a sinner, that's quite uncomfortable. And I can completely understand that because their reaction can be, I'm happy to hear about God. I'm happy to hear about God who loves me, but I'm not happy for you to have a go at me and tell me that I'm a bad person. And I think that's fair enough. I understand that. I've met a lot of people who say they have no need of Christianity. They live a happy life. They feel fulfilled. They would say that they're living life to the full. They're basically decent, good people. Um, and again, I think that's a reasonable thing to think. But sin is a gravely serious thing. And so, just warning you, what I'm about to describe about sin is the most depressing news you will ever hear. Some of you snigger nervously. I mean it. Um, but unless, unless we understand the significant, the, the, the huge thing that sin is, 
We're never going to understand either the significance or the purpose of why Jesus died. And so then, after we've got that, we look at the results of what his death did, the fact that we can be saved from sin. And that is the most wonderful, the most life-giving news that we will ever hear. It's the most incredible news that this world has to offer. So I would just ask you to hear this uncomfortable truth. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by sin, I mean any action, any thought that is not perfect in the sight of God. All have sinned. And this can be hard to hear. Outside of religious dialogue, we don't really use the word sin very much. It sort of seems to be quite old-fashioned. But I would argue that all of us, every single, single one of us sat in here, would recognize the damage that sin does and we are offended by sin. When we heard about the, the, the killing of 20 preschool children in Newtown by that gunman, the world was just shocked. It was horrified. We were angry. And similarly, recently on the news about the, the violent death of the student on the train in Delhi, I think we were all sickened. There's an innate sense of anger at, at that, that there needs to be just, it needs to be made right, that that was wrong. Now, we, those are obvious sins, and we might prefer to call them crimes, but the point that I'm getting at is that we do, all of us, recognize actions that violate moral laws. I would, we all have a moral compass within us. We all know that injustices need to be put right. But it's still uncomfortable to hear that we've all sinned and that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Because we say things like, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm really not as bad as that person. Um, we set ourselves up as the standard by which moral actions can be judged. So um, I'm going to illustrate this. Um, any guesses as to what occupation I had before being a full-time mum? I have post-it notes to hand. I was a teacher. Um, okay. So, imagine this stand is some sort of scale of goodness. And what we have at the bottom is no goodness at all, so that's evil. And it's kind of an ever-increasing scale, more virtuous the higher we get. So I thought what we'd do um, is set the bar really high and start with me. So, <laughs> you've basically got to tell me where you think it should go. <laughs> My husband is not allowed to say anything. <laughs> Okay, I'll help you out a little bit. Should we sort of baby there? <laughs> all right, okay, all right. This one's easy, James. So, um, <laughs> uh, well, he's not going higher than me, so. <laughs> Margaret Raisy, give us a wave. <laughs> That's obvious, isn't it? Okay, right, some more serious ones now. Mother Teresa, what do you reckon? Pretty high, yeah. Margaret, yeah, I level with Margaret. She's, she's Sid, Sid Cup's Mother Teresa. <laughs> oh, and changing the tone slightly, Adolf Hitler. So, uh, <clears throat> right, okay. Now, do you notice what I sort of did there? Um, I set myself as the standard in a way. And it's, it's easy to do that in life. You kind of judge other people as good because they generally do things that you think, oh, that, you know, they are more virtuous than I am. They're good people. 
And people of dubious moral character, generally we go, yeah, well, I wouldn't do that. And inadvertently, and it's a very natural thing to do, we are setting ourselves up as a standard. Okay, try this. Where would we put a perfect human being? Top of the stand? Ceiling? What do we reckon? What is the benchmark for goodness? Yeah. The standard isn't ourselves. It's not Mother Teresa. It's not even the ceiling. It's actually the sky. It's infinity. It's the full glory of God as revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. And there was a perfect human being, and his name was Jesus. And he, and when I say perfect human being, he never sinned. He never thought one wrong thought. And compared to him, we fall way short. Full glory of God. That's why it says, all have sinned, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's the standard. If I was being watched Big Brother style, sometimes think about this, and people watched every action that I did, I would be seriously embarrassed. But if there was a narrator narrating my thoughts, I would be mortified. Um, And I'm sure I wouldn't be the only one in here. It might not be obvious on the outside. And what I do might seem trivial in comparison to the big sort of sin that hits the news. But the fact remains, I am way, way off perfection. Sin isn't like a disease that some catch and others escape from. Paul says, there is none righteous, that's in the Bible, there is none righteous, no, not one. So I suppose you could say, okay, fair enough, we all sin, we're all in the same boat, so what's the big deal? Kind of, you know, I'll accept that. Um, The problem is this, and to sort of help us out, I've summarized it under four headings, all beginning with P. So firstly, the pollution of sin. Jesus said in Mark 7, What comes out of you makes you unclean. Sin doesn't start on the outside, although that's when we see it, but sin doesn't start on the outside. It actually starts on the inside. Sin starts in the hearts of people. There's a story about an organized criminal gang who used to um, illegally dispose of of, of waste. They'd get waste, um, highly toxic industrial waste from, from huge companies. And what they'd do is they'd basically load it onto a ship and then they'd sail the ship out into the ocean and then basically just sink the whole ship. And can you imagine the damage that that would do? Maybe not initially, because it would have been in containers, but those containers, it would start to seep out, different currents of tides and things seeping out. And in many ways, our life is like that. It's very similar. We can sink stuff inside us. Greed, malice, sexual immorality, anger, deceit, envy, slander, all the stuff that's done to us and all the stuff that's done by us in the different currents of life, it can start seeping out, come bubbling up to the surface. And then we wonder why we're so polluted, why we're so damaged. Now someone might say, okay, look, I don't do all of those things. I'm not that bad. But the point is, if you do one of those things, you're polluted. But sin is so much more than that. You see, sin is simply believing that I know best. Sin is simply believing that I am self-sufficient. I'm living for myself. I have no need for the person who created me, the God who created me. And that really messes things up because it's not how we were designed to be. It messes everything up because unchecked sin has more power over us than we have over it. Sin pollutes our hearts. 
Secondly, the power of sin. Sin is addictive. It's kind of got a power to it. It's got a grip on us. Now, we all know sort of things like drugs and alcohol can be addictive, but Jesus said that you can get addicted to all kinds of things. Bad temper, being jealous, being arrogant, being lustful, being greedy. Sin's a big problem. It's got power. Thirdly, the penalty of sin. In America, when that gunman killed 26 people, he then turned the gun on himself. And I'd imagine if you were directly affected by that tragedy, there'd be such a sense of frustration that that guy, that guy didn't get brought to justice. And I, you know, many reasons, but I think one of the reasons why politicians and celebrities have been campaigning about banning handguns is because there seems there needs to be action. It's not enough to just go, oh, okay, he's dead. There needs to be some sort of putting right, making it right. Similarly, in the situation in Delhi, I don't know if you heard on the news, but the five perpetrators of that horrendous murder were kept in a courthouse in Delhi, and they were mobbed by hundreds of angry people who were shouting, hang them, hang them. And many would say that, yeah, they do deserve death. And we have, from the reactions of people, we seem to have an innate sense that sin needs to be dealt with. But why do we feel so strongly that sin needs to be punished? If we're just a bunch of cells thrown together and then there's a survival of the fittest kind of... Why, why do we think the weak need to be protected? Why do we have a sense that people who take wrongly from others need to be brought to justice? We instinctively know it. And I think that the reason we do is because we have a divine imprint on us. And so to some degree, I think we feel the same about evil and justice that God does. Righteous anger about what is hideously wrong. Something within our nature cries out for justice. And the Bible says in Romans 8, 23, the wages of sin is death. And by death here, Paul isn't just talking about a physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death. And that moves us on to the the fourth spiritual problem. Sin creates a separation between us and God, the partition of sin. Now, you and I were born for a perfect relationship with God. It's our purpose for being. We were born to enjoy eternal life, and sin cuts us off from that. It puts a big wall in the way. And God hates sin. He hates all sin. He knows what it does to us. He knows what it does to other people. He can't abide it. And so we can't enjoy fellowship and relationship with God when we are sinful because God is perfectly good and just and the sin needs to be dealt with. And so therefore, we have a separation from God. Right, after so much bad news, we arrive at the good news because Christianity really is good news. We arrive at the solution of the problem, Jesus He died to pay the price, the penalty for our sin. He died to rid us of the pollution, and he died to remove the partition. When I was 18, I was in um, South Africa, and in a place called Benoni. I don't know if any of you know it. It's near Johannesburg. And I was invited into the home of a Muslim lady. She opened the door, and she was dressed fully, head to toe, in a burqa. And I went in, and we were talking, and she was describing her life a little bit. And she was saying that she prayed five times a day. She, um, she only listened to a, a Muslim station on the radio. She didn't watch TV. To humble herself, she would sleep on the floor. Her house was completely minimalistic. She was so 
I guess, religious. Like she, her life was so rigid and structured and disciplined. And faith, I mean, she was so religious. But in the conversation, I asked her about heaven and whether she had security that she'd go to heaven. And you know what? She said, no, I don't know if I'll get to heaven. And, you know, asking about why, she said, well, okay, I do, you know, I try and do as many good deeds as possible. But one bad thing I do, I could choose not to forgive me for that. And I was really struck by that. And then I talked about Jesus. I was talking a bit about why he died and the fact that he died for us. And this is the, the moment I was referring to earlier. It was like a light was switched on because she just looked at me. And she, with confusion and frustration and even offense in her eyes, she said, why would my prophet die for me? And, you know, because in Islam... Jesus isn't the son of God, he's not God, he's a prophet. He's a messenger of God amongst many other messengers. And it, for me, that was just such a moment because I sort of thought, he did. Like, Jesus did die. He did die willingly for the sin that we do. And then I, it just dawned on me, but it, he wasn't a prophet. He wasn't just a special messenger. He was God, creator of the universe, king of heaven and earth, who chose to die a humiliating excruciating death to save me and what a way to die I mean I don't know how much you know about crucifixion I'm not going to go into it too much here but crucifixion was the most cruel and hideous of tortures when you're being nailed to a cross six inch nails not in your palms in your wrists in your ankles left to hang and you eventually would die because you literally didn't have the strength in you to lift your chest to breathe so you suffocated But the New Testament doesn't focus on the physical agony of Jesus. The New Testament doesn't really even focus on the emotional agony that Jesus' friends deserted him in that hour of need. The New Testament focuses on the spiritual suffering of Jesus. And that makes what Jesus did on the cross completely unique. Many people died through that Roman form of torture. But what makes Jesus' suffering unique to anybody else is that he suffered spiritually. No one else knew what it was like to be completely sin-free, to be innocent, and yet to experience punishment and abandonment for the sin of others. No one else has experienced that. Isaiah 53 says, The Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. To try and understand what actually happened on the cross spiritually, I'm going to use the words that Joshua Harris quoted in one of his books. And I read this at a very similar time to that incident in Benoni. Um, So imagine this. They lift the cross. God is on display, bleeding, and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during that day... And an earthly foul odour began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl across his spotless being. The living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father? He must face his father like this? From heaven, the father like a lion disturbed shakes his mane and roars. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. 
never felt even the least of this hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize those eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, to foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves. I hate, I loathe those things in you. Disgust for everything about you just consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course the son is innocent. He is blameless himself, and the father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. And the father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw liquid sin jesus cries father father why have you forsaken me but heaven stops its ears the son stares at the one who cannot who will not reach down or reply the trinity had planned it the son endured it the spirit enabled him and the father rejected the son whom he loved jesus the god man from nazareth perished The father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied and the rescue was accomplished. See, our God suffered. He knows what it is to suffer. So when we suffer, he's not just observing from afar. He's right there with us. And the rescue that was accomplished was for you. Greater love, Jesus says, has no man than this. That they lay down their life for their friends. But if Jesus had stayed dead, nothing would actually have changed for us. But it did. Everything changed. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead victoriously, defeating sin, overcoming death itself. The Bible says, oh death, where is your sting? Because Jesus, by dying, was then raised gloriously from the dead. And he took the power out of death itself. And the New Testament uses loads of different images to try and explain what impact that has on us. Firstly, Jesus' death frees us from that pollution of sin. No matter what you have done, you can make a clean start. It is the most incredible news. We can't do it ourselves. That's impossible. That Muslim lady, it didn't matter how structured and rigid and disciplined her life was. She knew that one thought could be the thing. That messed it all up because she didn't know Jesus as a savior. Self-discipline doesn't work. Animal sacrifice doesn't work. The Old Testament was full of rules about how to make yourself clean, but it's impossible. And that's why the writer of the New Testament in Hebrews said, it is impossible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sin. They are only a shadow. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He got it. In that instant, he looked and he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God. He was the one perfect sacrifice. And what he did 
The blood that he shed in dying washes the pollution out of our lives. All that muck, all that toxic waste, the cross wipes the slate clean. Through the cross, we can know forgiveness for what we've done. Through the cross, we can know healing. We can know our shame, our deep shame lift. We can know forgiveness. And that forgiveness can break into all the things we've done and release the power from it. The cross enables us to make a fresh start. The cross wipes away the pollution of sin. And secondly, Jesus' death is an answer to the power of sin. We can be set free from the bad habits. We can be set free from the addiction. In the ancient world, very much like today actually, people used to get themselves into debt. And unlike today, I guess. Um, in the ancient world, what people used to do was they would take themselves off to the marketplace and they would hang a sign around their neck for the amount that they were in debt. And what would happen was that somebody with money would come along and pay that amount that they were in debt. And um, it was called the ransom price. But that person was then owned by them. Like they owned that person. They were then their slave. And, and that's just a, a really powerful image because what would happen if someone came along and paid that ransom price, but then set that person free. You see, that is what Jesus did. And Jesus used those words himself. He said, I come to give my life as a ransom. Whatever any of you are under the power of today, you can be set free by Jesus. There are people in this room who can testify to that. They're under the power of things, and because of what Jesus did, that power is broken. The Bible says, if the Son sets you free... You are free indeed. Thirdly, the cross is the answer to the penalty of sin. Because of the cross, you and I can receive total forgiveness. Paul in the New Testament says that through Christ's death, we have been justified. Justified is like a legal term. So basically, if you're accused of something and you go to court and then you're acquitted, you're pronounced not guilty, you're justified. And Jesus paid the penalty for sin so that we could receive that not guilty verdict. We could be justified. Galatians 2 verse 20 said, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And it really is as personal as that. We have been justified. He is the answer to the penalty of sin. And fourthly, the cross is the answer to the partition between us and God. We were created to be, as I said, in a relationship with God who loves us. But both the root and the result of our selfishness and our sin is a broken relationship. But Jesus made a way for us. Now, he didn't, we didn't just get forgiven and then kind of, I forgive you, but, you know, easier if we don't hang out. That kind of thing. When Jesus forgives us, the Bible says that we are actually become new creations. We get adopted into a family. It's not a, I forgive you, but, you know, it's, it's an embracing. It's a reconciliation. It's, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my family. We get adopted into God's family. The result of the cross is a restored relationship with God. The barrier has gone. And there's a great scripture that says, God was in Christ reconciling the world, that's you and me, to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, if Jesus was a random guy that God chose to kind of put all the sins of the world on and then punish, I mean, it wouldn't have worked anyway because that guy wouldn't have been perfect, but that would have been barbaric. But actually, God was in Christ. God himself rescued us, reconciled us. He came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and me. And therefore, it's possible for us to be restored to a right relationship with God. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. Whoever believed, that is the response required. It's a free gift that God offers. Back to that conversation with the Muslim lady in Benoni. She had no certainty that she would ever see God, that she would ever live beyond the grave. And I do. And it seriously isn't because of anything I do. I I really don't deserve it. But because of God's grace, he's made a way for me to know freedom and made a way for me to live life to the full. And I'm being completely honest here. I might seem like I flap around quite a lot. I've got two young kids. But I know a deep peace. I know a security and a certainty of what it means to know what's happening after I die because of what Jesus has done and because of what he accomplished on the cross. The same could be true of you. Accept it. Or say no thanks. The choice is yours. I'm just going to close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have made a way for us. Thank you that we can be right with our Heavenly Father. Thank you that although I was once a sinner, lost in life, and swallowed up in, in guilt and shame, I can know real freedom because of what you did for me. I know I can be forgiven. I know that I can be free. And I can enjoy life as you intend it. And I pray that this truth would penetrate our hearts here today. And that we would be open to your call for restoration. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.